Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. I'm Pete Stearns and I'm our pastor of family ministries. And over the next few weeks, we are launching into a series called Explore God. And together we are going to be wrestling through some of the tough questions of faith. I have the unenviable task today of trying to articulate to you the meaning of life. (laughs) You see, many of us turn to religion, we turn to God when we seek significance and we ask the question, is there really purpose to life? But I don't know about you, but when I ask that question, in reality what I'm trying to say is, is there purpose to my life? Am I valuable? Can I play a role? Can I be useful to a broader cause? And so we find ourselves turning to God and asking God, how can I be of use to you? How can you bring about my value, my significance, my meaning? Well, I want to encourage us today by saying that we've come to the right place. We can rest assured that all purpose and all meaning is rooted within the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are invited to be a part of that story. However, I think the challenge when we ask this question is that our focus and our lens is upon ourselves. When we are looking for my value, my worth, my significance, we are the subject of the question. But I think we need to start to shift our lens to see the world and to see significance through Christ's kingdom. I coach uh, youth soccer for the Downers Grove Roadrunners. I'm a 7th and 8th grade boys coach. And every year at the beginning of the season, the boys uh, tell me what position they play. And 90% of 8th grade boys, this is an official Barna study, um, it's not, 90% of 8th grade boys tell me that they are a forward. Now, if you're not familiar with soccer, a forward is the one that gets all the glory. They score all the goals. They don't run nearly as much as anybody else. And at the professional level, they're these larger-than-life personalities with, with massive egos. And so if you are an eighth grade boy seeking significance, seeking value, then surely you must be a forward. Well, the reality is, is that A forward requires a very unique skill set, and unfortunately, 90% of 8th grade boys don't have that skill set. And so usually I try to coach these boys uh, into finding themselves in in better positions, maybe positions that are less glorious but are just as foundational to the team. And more often than not, these boys refuse to see themselves as anything other than a goal scorer. Now, I contrast that with another boy on my team. He's been on my team for a few years now, and when he first started playing with us, he didn't necessarily have any skills that set him above the rest of the boys. He wasn't my fastest player. He wasn't my strongest player. He wasn't the most proficient dribbler. He wasn't the best passer or shooter, but he worked really hard. And at the beginning of every season, he comes to me and says, Coach, play me wherever you think I will play best. And this one boy has, has grown exponentially over the years. In fact, two years ago after the season, he was named our team MVP as voted by his peers, all of the other forwards. Uh, he, was, <laughs> he was made to be the captain 
in the next season, and now this year he's been promoted up to the premier level teams in our club. You see, I think a lot of times when we ask the question, God, what is my significance? Really what we're saying is, God, I'm a forward. How can you use me? God, I score goals. Where can I be of use to you? And God is telling us to be much more like this other boy, to come to him and say, God, here I am at your feet. How can you use me as a vessel of your gospel? Too often... I find that I am inflexible. I am unwilling to see myself fulfilling a role different than that which I had originally intended. And I assume that I know my talents, my skills, my abilities better than the God that has created me. And so to start debunking this worldview, we're going to turn to Scripture. And we're going to look at a passage that's very familiar to each and every one of us. It's a passage in which Paul talks about the church as a body of believers, each with a separate part. But we're going to rewind a little bit and begin to look at the preceding verses and the context which set this well-known passage up. Before we open to Romans, we need to remind ourselves that Paul used to be known as Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee that was hell-bent on persecuting the church of Christ. He saw Christians as a threat to, to his religious beliefs, and so he would go from town to town, creating fear and stirring up riots and forcing the church into the places of darkness and obscurity. And one day, as he was traveling to Damascus to do that very thing, God stopped him in his tracks. And it says that Saul experienced a blinding light, and in that light, God said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that moment radically shifted how Saul saw his significance, where his purpose laid. And he turned a complete 180 and, and changed his life around. In fact, he was so changed that he had to call himself something different. He, he renamed himself Paul as a symbol of what had happened on the inside of his heart. And so Paul is writing these letters to the church, and he's writing to the church in in various cities, and, and his magnum opus is a book called Romans. And in Romans, he's writing to the church in Rome. Well, the church in Rome is experiencing a rather unique division in this moment of Paul's letter. Five years preceding, the Roman emperor had kicked all Jewish uh, believers, all Jews, out of the city of Rome. He had exiled them away from Rome, and now, as Paul is writing this letter, he has just passed away, and these Jewish believers are coming back to their hometown, back to the city of Rome, and they're, they're re-emerging within the church that they had founded. But now the Christian church in Rome is mostly filled with Gentile believers. And those Gentile believers have different traditions than Jewish believers. And so they're experiencing conflict and division over the places in faith that seemingly are not salvific. I don't know if that sounds familiar to our current day evangelical landscape. And Paul comes to them 
and is trying to unify them under one spirit, saying if we worship one God, then there can be no division within his spirit and within his movement. And so seek his purpose and be united with one another. So we open to Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now there are two significant implications to the passage that we first just read. First, is that in God, we find all things. In God, we find significance. In God, we find purpose. Paul says, who can even know the paths of God because they are so untraceable? Who can understand what he can understand because his knowledge is beyond comprehension? All blessing, all gifts are rooted in God, are sustained through God, and point back to God. And so we can rest assured in this place that God has a purpose. God is significant. And his blessings that are poured out upon us should point back to that significance. But the second profound implication is if all gifts, all talents, all passions, all purpose, all significance, and all meaning begins in God, is sustained by God, and points back to God, then God does not need our gifts. God does not need the earthly blessings that we bring to the table. You see, I am in a small group uh, with five other couples, and, and each of us couples have children that are in similar age and stage. And during the week, we like to stay in touch with each other. And so we have this group chat. And in the group chat, we send each other uh, encouragements, we post funny memes. We might ask for prayer, but one of the messages that most frequently populates our text chat are images of used things in our homes that we're looking to get rid of. Baby gear that never ended up actually being useful. Toys that we received in duplicate. Clothing that has been outgrown. Furniture that no longer fits in our homes. And these text chains have have exploded in recent days with the popularity of Mary Kondo's Netflix special. Uh, And usually when one of those images gets posted, our small group kind of jumps on it like piranhas that smell blood in the water. We're in a stage of life where anything helps. But as I've thought about this passage, I've recognized that this is so often how we come to God. We come to God with our leftovers, with our excess. We say, God, I have experienced a season in my life of financial blessing, and so now I'm equipped to give to you. What can you do with this money? We say to ourselves, God, I have some more time on my hands. Is there a place that I can be strategically put in volunteership to serve your kingdom, maybe with the youth or maybe in the domestic mission field? And if we 
take what Paul says seriously in 33 through 36, we recognize that God doesn't need our leftovers. He doesn't need our duplicates. He doesn't need our gifts that have been so exhausted in our regular life that we're just finding some way to add some additional meaning and purpose to them. Instead, God wants to pour out giftings and blessings and purpose upon us, not the other way around. God is not dependent upon what we have, but rather we are entirely dependent on God. And so Paul continues. And so now we move into chapter 12, verse 1. And it says, therefore, and anytime we study theology, we say, if there's a therefore, we need to understand what's the therefore, therefore. And so this therefore is pointing back to this passage that has just talked about God's blessings, talked about God's significance, and talked about how all meaning and purpose is rooted in God, sustained by God, and points back to God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see, the depth of this passage is lost when we understand the word sacrifice within a modern context. You see, because I understand sacrifice uh, as a temporary pain for a long-term gain. We even have sayings that say, no pain, no gain. It's this transactional behavior that that nets us a, a broader return in the future. Think about it. If you want to put one of those marathon stickers on the back of your car for all to see, first you need to sacrifice your time. You need to train, you need to work hard, you need to watch your diet. If you want to cross the finish line of the Chicago Marathon, it is going to take sacrifice to get there. But once you have made that sacrifice, you will receive in turn significance or value. We talk often in our careers that we're going through a season in which we are sacrificing our time. We are spending late nights in the office because we know that if we sacrifice our time now, it will yield results for us in the future by way of promotion and compensation. I was reading an article this week that said 10 sacrifices that successful people make for their dreams. And the article highlighted 10 multimillionaires and asked them, what was the most significant sacrifice you ever made in your career? And these multimillionaires said things like this. There was one whose net worth is valued at $500 million, and he said, the greatest sacrifice I ever made was recognizing that I had to give up golf because if I was golfing three days a week, I wasn't going to be able to focus on my investments. That must have been tough. Um, (laughs) Another said that the way that she amassed her millions is actually there was a point in her career that was so challenging and so difficult that she actually had to work a nine-to-five job to pay the bills. Another person said that, believe it or not, they had to sacrifice so much that there was a period of time in their life that they lived paycheck to paycheck just to make ends meet. You see, what the world calls sacrifice, I recognize as like my day-to-day reality of life. And you see, when we trivialize sacrifice, we begin to convince ourselves that when Paul says, if you want to receive the blessings of God, you need to sacrifice yourself. And so we assume that, God, I will sacrifice 10% of my income so that I can experience treasure in heaven. 
God, I will sacrifice my time to serve you so that I might seek purpose and significance in your kingdom. God, I will give you a small piece of my comfort so that I might be fulfilled. But we need to recognize that anyone that would have heard Paul's words here would not have thought of the Chicago Marathon. They would not have thought about giving up their hobbies and their golf. They would not have thought that the sacrifice Paul was talking about was working a job. Instead, they would have been drawn to a picture of an atoning sacrifice. Because each of these believers at one point had likely come into the temple carrying with them a spotless, blameless lamb and laid it before the feet of the priest. And the priest would have slit this lamb's throat and used a basin to collect its blood and taken this basin and sprinkled the blood around the temple as a symbol of the cleansing sacrifice. A symbol that in the loss of life, new life has sprung about. And this is the picture of sacrifice that Paul calls us to. To die from our old life. To give it up so that new life can spring about. When I hear that, immediately try to figure out how I can make this fit within my own life and my own passions and my own desires. And I assume that what Paul is really saying is that if you want to receive everything that God has to offer, then, then you might as well empty yourself out completely because if you have more room in you, then you're going to receive more, right? But I realize that, again, this is framing the uh, question of purpose through my eyes and not God's. You see, I assume that, God, it's my decision whether or not I want all of your blessing. Maybe I just want 75% of your blessing because I really want to hold on to this part of my life. I really want to hold on to my comfort. I really want to hold on to my wealth. I really want to hold on to my Saturday mornings. But God, you can have everything else, and I'm okay with the reality that that's going to slightly sacrifice some of the reward you might give me. But I think it's a little bit different. A few years ago, my wife and I had a breakfast beverage dilemma. Talk about a first world problem. My wife had recently given up coffee and she was drinking tea in the morning. And this wreaked havoc on our morning routine. We no longer could have a, a pot of coffee where we poured our cups and, and shared them over breakfast. Instead, we had to get this kettle that would remain permanently affixed to the stovetop. And I would have these pots of coffee that were way too big for any human to consume. And so we would waste coffee and we would waste space. And so we sought a solution. And we did a bunch of research, and at the time, this was cutting edge, but Keurig had just come out with a machine that not only could dispense a personal cup of coffee, but could also provide instant hot water. We thought all of our problems had been solved, and so we got this machine, and it arrived, and for the first few weeks, it, it worked out magnificently. I could have my cup of coffee, she could have her hot water to steep her tea in, and we wouldn't have to waste any extra grounds or any stovetop space. But after a few weeks, uh, Brittany began to complain that her tea tasted a little funky. 
And as time went on, she said that her tea really tasted like tea that had been steeped in bad coffee. Because the coffee that I was making was leaving a residue in the Keurig machine and its, its little tubes and pipes and water reservoir. And no matter how often we tried to clean it or how much hot water we pushed through the machine to try to clear it out, Brittany was left with a tea that was tainted by the flavor of coffee. And you see, I think that this is an illustration of what Paul is leading us to. You see, Paul says, empty yourself out completely of everything in your life. Sacrifice your life in a permanent way before God so that he can fill you with his blessings, not so that you might feel fulfilled, but so that his gospel would be communicated to those around you without being tainted by the residue of your sin, your brokenness, and your fallen humanity. You see, because if I cling to my wealth and sacrifice everything else, I am tempted to articulate a gospel that is focused around my own prosperity to those around me. If I give God everything except my political party, Jesus' gospel is tainted by the negativity that comes from either side. If I hold tightly to my own comfort and give God everything else, then his living water is tainted by a gospel focused on myself rather than denial and surrender. You see, Paul calls us to empty ourselves completely because he understands that as long as we hold on to anything from our previous life, the gospel of Jesus will be tainted by that coffee residue. And he continues and articulates this very thing in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Only after you have emptied yourself completely do you begin to glimpse a picture of God's significance and purpose. Only when we have sacrificed ourselves in a permanent way do we even begin to comprehend the will of God. Until that point, we are left living this half-life. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, most of us are not really approaching scriptures in order to find out what Christianity says. We are approaching them in the hope of finding support from Christianity for the views of our own party. You see, if we are unwilling to empty ourselves, anytime we turn to God, anytime we turn to Scripture and begin to understand the purpose and significance that Christ carries with him, we tend to just use it as an affirmation to the life that we already are living or the life that we hope to live. And instead, Paul says, you must offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Allow your mind to be transformed and renewed in a powerful way. Not so that you might reap rewards in heaven. Not so that it will be a pain for gain type of transaction. But instead, so that those around you might experience my unadulterated gospel message and be transformed in a similar way. 
And then once you've done all of that, you can open to every Christian's favorite passage. Romans 12, 4 through 8. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. You see, the temptation that we have when we read this passage is to immediately begin to identify which of those gifts most closely aligns to our life. And now you see the implications of understanding the text that precedes it. Is that Paul says there is no way you will be able to discern these spiritual gifts in your life until first you have recognized that all purpose begins, is sustained, and ends in God. That you are to sacrifice yourself completely before him. And when your mind has been renewed and transformed, you will understand his will. And when you understand his will, then he will impart gifts upon you that allow you to effectively pursue God's significance and not your own. You see, it changes everything. And I've got to be honest, over the last couple of weeks, I've really struggled with this. I've hoped that this concept was, was an isolated passage of scripture that I could contextualize away. Because if I look at my life, I can't possibly imagine that my life is the type of permanent living sacrifice that Paul is talking about. My thoughts are still consumed with my finances. I am quick to assume the worst about others than to see the best in them. I am more likely to stay up all night binge-watching a show about cleaning my house than I am to binge-watch a show about cleaning my heart. I'm self-focused and self-reliant. And so I wish that this wasn't true. But as I read the Gospels and I read Scripture, I recognize that this theme is one of the most prevalent ideas in all of Scripture. As we look into Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Forever who, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. When we want to cling to the life that we had before, we will lose it. We can be confident in that. But if we're willing to lay our life before God, we will find significance and meaning that we didn't comprehend before. Mark 10, 21, Jesus looked at him, the rich young ruler, and loved him and said, One thing you lack, go Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And we read in scripture later that he walks away saddened because he cannot release his grip on his wealth. John 3, 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again, not repurposed. Born again. 
Mark 1, 17 through 18, Jesus is calling the disciples, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once, they left their nets, their lives, their significance, their comfort, and followed him. John 15, 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear any fruit unless you remain in me. Scripture goes on and on and on. Jesus doesn't call us to a repurposed life. He is not simply trying to add significance on top of what we already want for ourselves. Instead, he is calling us to place ourselves at his feet, to become a vessel of his gospel in a way that is untainted by humanity, depravity, and sinfulness. Scripture is clear. We are either all in or we are out. I wish that there were baby steps. I wish that it was easier than this. I wish when Jesus called his disciples, they said, let me go home and think about it. Let me crunch some numbers. Let me talk to my friends. Let me seek advice and wisdom that will affirm that this isn't the life for me and I can feel justified in not following you. But they drop their nets and they go. I wish that Jesus said, volunteer once a week and, and give 10% of your income and then you will re reap a return in heaven, but he doesn't. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross. This is an intensely personal question for each and every one of us. And it has very different implications for each and every one of us. But God's call here is not for you to be a better version of yourself, but instead to be a clear picture of his gospel one that impacts the people that you work with, one that changes the focus of your family, one that reorients how you see blessing and finances in your life, one that is rooted in Christ, sustained by him, and always points back to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I come before you humbled. It is so evident to me how far I fall short of this call to be a living sacrifice. Lord, I admit that it makes me uncomfortable, that it makes me scared, that it makes me defensive, and that my immediate reaction is to justify my own reality rather than bend down before you. Lord, we pray today that you would stir in our hearts. And Lord, that you would lead us to be living sacrifices, to become vessels of your purpose, your significance, your gospel in a way that is untainted by our sin, our fallenness, and our earthly desires. We pray this in your name. Amen.